Grace and peace to you, brothers and sisters. This is Ruben Rosales, and we are on Church History Matters. And I am Joseph Knowles, and I have a quote for you today, Ruben. Okay. I already read it to you, but I will read it for the listeners, <laughs> too. Um, this is from uh, J.V. Fesco, and he is a professor of systematic and historical theology at Reformed Theological Seminary. So coming from his Twitter account, uh, but I thought it was really good, so I'd, I saved it, and here it is. He says... Studying church history is important because many have no idea where they've come from, have no idea where they are, and fear where they may be going. So we're hopefully here to cure some of those fears, Yes, let's say. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so where, uh, why don't you catch us up to date with uh, where we left off in our last uh, recording session and, and to where we are now and what we're going to discuss today. Absolutely. So uh, we, I think the last thing we did when we left off was we went through those um, articles of remonstrance, um, the, uh, I guess what you call the articles of Arminianism. Yeah. Not really, but well, you could call it that and you wouldn't be totally wrong. We kind of walked through those and, and what they were talking about and we gave um, some of the background. Um, so that kind of brought us all the way up to the year 1619. And this National Synod is going to meet in the the town of Dordrecht in the United Provinces. And the uh, the purpose of the Synod was to kind of resolve some of these things, put the followers of Arminius in hot seat a little bit, which, uh, as you remember, we talked about they didn't really care for very much. So they um, left early on. They were asked to leave, actually, right? That's right. They were they were told, you, you don't have to go home, but you got to get up out of here. Um, oh, hold on, time out. I just remembered something I wanted to share because I said something on the last episode that was not entirely true uh, uh, concerning the printing press. So the time of the printing press was actually, I think, about 100 years earlier than this point here. So there was distribution of mass uh, uh, articles of uh, distribution, so books and all the other stuff was available. Yes, right, true. Um, so... And stuff like this would get out and would be oh, yeah. reprinted widely. So um, what we're going to talk about today would be the what was the major work of the Synod. And they did a lot of different things, um, but the major one that we remember is the Canons of Dort. Um, so these were, again, we already talked about this, but they were not coming up with something new. They were responding to these um, five articles of remonstrance. So, erroneous. Yes, erroneous. Erroneous on... All counts. Yeah. Well, um, except for one. Well, except for one. They get they get one right. They got one right. Um, sort of. We'll see. Well, that's what we're going to talk about. So, um, the order of the uh, just as a kind of refresher, the order of the articles of remonstrance was first in Article One to talk about election. They held that it was conditional. Article Two talks about the atonement. They hold to a general atonement, not a particular atonement or a definite atonement. Um, Article Three. Um, covered the T in the tulip, which was uh, we now know as total depravity, which is not the, probably the greatest way to refer to it, but that's uh, kind of what the the um, nomenclature has become, the, the shorthand reference. Um, Article 4 dealt with the resistibility or not resistibility of uh, grace, and then yeah. finally Article 5 dealt with uh, the perseverance or the preservation of the saints. So in responding to these... Um, the synod kind of mirrors um, that same order. But as we'll see, when they get to number three and number four, 
um, they kind of have to do something a little bit different. Um, and if we didn't, I think we already recommended it, but I'll recommend it again um, since it's been um, some bit of time since we've talked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, hope, uh, hopefully those who are hearing these episodes are just getting it back to back so you get the full thing. And if I recommended this on the last episode, sorry, you're going to hear about it again. But uh, the book is Saving the Reformation by Dr. Robert for Godfrey. Uh, yes. And if, if you want to know about this historical topic and also want a, just a great exposition of the Canons of Dort, that's probably the one you're going to want to go to. So a lot of uh, the insights that I'll talk about will be um, borrowed from him. So if there's anything that's really, really good, you can probably thank Dr. Godfrey and not me. Yes. So where should we start? At the beginning? Um, well, I'm, I'm, of course, I'm always thinking about... I'm always thinking about my wife um, and when we record these because she hates history and is bored to death by it. <laughs> so I'm just, I'm, I want to um, answer a few questions. Um, she was also very surprised when I showed up at your house today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Whoops. I forgot to tell her that you were coming by with the kids. My bad. Uh, but God worked it all out. So yes, he did. <laughs> so uh, why does it really matter? that all of this stuff gets gone through with a fine-tooth comb? Like, why does it matter that we talk about, uh, oh, what's wrong with Arminianism and what's wrong with uh, Calvinism just getting along and, and worshiping together and just saying, hey, we, we all believe the same thing? Mm-hmm. Why, is it, why is it so important? I mean, that <laughs> because there are significant issues. I mean, that that's part of the reason that they did have... A whole, I mean, they they convened. It was a national issue. Yeah. So they saw that it was important enough to say, um, this is too different. Now there are, and we'll get to this. There are a couple points on which even amongst the the delegates to the synod, they didn't agree amongst themselves. That they actually uh, the remonstrants tried to use some of those issues to drive a wedge between them. Right. But it was important enough for them to say, this is so different. This is so novel. In fact. That we're not gonna we're not gonna give up what we've won over the last hundred years right. in the Reformation by sliding back into some of those same errors that we saw. Right. So so I guess that's also an important thing to note is that when it comes to Arminianism and um, what the reformers were trying to do in the Reformation, um, I guess they, you could say that they saw Arminianism as a very very a huge step back towards Roman Catholicism, which is something they had no desire to get near. Absolutely. Um, And there's a, well, I'll save those for later, but there's a couple points where they just flat out say, this is worse even than the errors of the Roman Catholic Church. That's how bad they said it was. Yeah, so here's a a paper here that I have, um, I can't, I don't know who wrote it, but it's some really good information. I got it from Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary. And uh, it says here, and I think this is this is important because I think this is the way we should word our arguments today, that it's ultimately the same fight that the reformers were fighting before, and that is sovereign grace mm. is what is at, at at hand here. This is we if we lose these reformed tenets of the faith, specifically with regard to how are people saved, uh, we we lose grace. Mm-hmm. It's no longer grace if there's any type of merit um, that man can enact on his own salvation. 
So uh, I'll just I'll just read the sentence. Uh, simply stated, we may say that the subject matter of the canons is sovereign grace conceived, sovereign grace merited, sovereign grace needed and applied, and sovereign grace preserved. So in every single one of these tenets, every single one of these um, points of Calvinism, uh, as it's now known, we have grace in each one of them. Mm -hmm. Total depravity, we see the grace of our God. Unlimited, um, unconditional, I'm sorry, unconditional (laughs) election, we see again the grace of our God. Limited atonement, we see his grace. Irresistible grace, again, just expounding grace upon grace upon grace. And if we... If we neglect to put an emphasis on it, we will end up idolizing our faith. Mm-hmm. We will believe that we're saved because of, you know, well, it's not Jesus that saved me. It's it's my own faith. I'm the one that came up with this faith, and I can make it stronger. And it's just a lie. Mm-hmm. And it's a dangerous lie. Absolutely. I made some notes here. I'm sure you did as well. Uh, and just to give you a um, uh, basic outline of how the canons of Dort are set up. I th- it's not a, a terribly lengthy document. You could probably sit down and read it in in a few hours, maybe. You already say, yeah, it's, it's a little bit lengthy. Right, I mean, it's a little lengthy. Uh, maybe a couple sittings if you really want to want to dig in and, and go through it piece by piece. Um, but it's not it's not so daunting that I think right. people just oh this is this is insurmountable. I can never get through this all. Now, especially like. Um, the one thing that Dr. Godfrey did in his book was do a new translation of the canons themselves. And it's, it's written in a very, uh, very readable way that I think still captures um, all of the rich theological truth that they, that they packed in there. Um, and we already walked through the, the articles of remonstrance reminding you that they are not set or they didn't go through in, the, in quite the same order that we're now familiar with, but they start with, um, the doctrine of election, and um, so the way they kind of set these up is they've got article, they've got um, heads of doctrine. The first head of doctrine deals with election. Then within each head of doctrine, they have articles where they lay out the positive case um, for what they're going to be saying. Yes. So there are fifty nine articles with respect to five heads of doctrine. Mm-hmm. So that's that's. That's a lot. It's yeah. a lot of information. So it's not, again, it would point to the, the significance of this in that it's not something small and simple that we can just be like, oh, well, it's, it's not a big deal. We can, you know, like uh, how often you do the Lord's Supper, mm-hmm. right? So that would be something that you can be like, okay, well, we could probably talk about what is most biblical. We can have some disagreement there. And that's right. fine. Um, but this is, is a much more significant thing. Okay. Um, 59 articles of exposition with regard to five heads of doctrine, and 34 repudiations of error. So Mm -hmm. not necessarily just 59 positive things. This is what we believe. This is what we affirm. But then additionally, on top of that, 39 things are where they said, we reject this premise. We reject this idea um, because it's not found in Scripture. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think in those um, rejections of error or repudiations or however it's worded in, in different translations, that's where... Um, the gloves come off a little bit, and they yeah. really, they really just lay it out and and say and tell it how it is. Not that they aren't in the other parts of the uh, uh, the canons, but in those they really get down to really get down to brass tacks. I yeah. think. Um, and this was something I hadn't I'd read through them before. I hadn't really 
study them in depth enough to to recognize this, and Dr. Godfrey points it out in his book, is that if you look at each of the articles, they proceed in a particular order. So if you look at the very first beginning uh, of the first head of doctrine, they start with um, what he would call um, Catholic Christianity, a small c Catholic. So these would be things that going back to the first and second century, all Christians throughout history would ascribe oh, yeah. to that doctrine as stated. So they start that way, and then they build a case for eventually getting to that distinctly reformed um, statement of the doctrine by the right. end of the of that head of doctrine. Um, and one thing I, I wanted to point out just in the, the first head of doctrine, again, this is on the, the doctrine of election. Um, the, so it's the first head of doctrine, Article 6, under the, the, the heading, um, as Dr. Godfrey translated, is God gives faith according to his plan. I won't read through the whole thing, but what he points out here is that there's a, a what would have been an obvious allusion to the Belgic confession in that article. And what they're trying to do there is that is to show that we're stating the doctrine that the church has historically held to. Right. We're not coming up with something new. It's the remonstrants and the followers of Arminius that are coming up with something new Mm -hmm. although we'll see really it's old but the point is right (laughs) what they're what they're trying to say is this is a departure from what the church has been holding to historically so orthodox christianity it's a departure from orthodox christianity exactly um so is that the is that the verse that you shared earlier today which one? The one that you where I said you're stirring the pot. Oh well, <laughs> not in, not intentionally, because <laughs> that I thought that was pretty good because it's it's um, I think even in Philippians chapter two or chapter one, mm-hmm. it says for it has been granted unto you to not only believe right. in Christ but to suffer for His sake. Mm-hmm. So it's granted to you to believe. You are given that gift by God. Right. You don't you don't just like you know come up with it on your own. Oh, exactly. so you said something also that I want to I want to touch on because some 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 listeners might not be aware of what what is what is confessions. What do you keep talking mm-hmm. about confession? What is what is reformed theology? Mm-hmm. Uh, so how would you describe those? What are, what is how would you describe reformed theology? And mm-hmm. very briefly and very succinctly, yeah. and how would you um, what is a confession? Right. I mean, Reformed theology, I mean, maybe it sounds like tautology, but it's just the re- theology that came to us because of the Reformation. So right. it includes, you know, doctrinal statements like what we have in the Candace of Dort, the Belgic Confession, mm-hmm. those documents, um, Martin Luther, John Calvin, those guys, um, and what, and the, the men that followed after them. And, you know, as far as the confession goes, there's a number of, um, prominent ones, um, the Westminster Confession of Faith, probably right. known by a lot of people, still held to by the Presbyterian Church today. Um, you have the Second London Baptist Confession, was held to by probably comparative, comparatively many fewer churches. Yes, but it's out there and it's been around for well over three hundred years now. All um, the good ones. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. No um, disrespect to our Presbyterian brothers. Right. Um, you have the Belgian Confession, which, re- I mean, really, uh, even up to the present day, is the confession of the Dutch Reformed Church. Right. So for over um, 400 years. But these are just 
um, documents so, they would say that they don't supplant scripture. Right. They're meant to be succinct. Expositions. Right. Expositions and succinct statements of what the church believes about the scripture. Um, because there are, just take for instance, the doctrine of the Trinity. You can't flip to a page of your Bible and get a statement of, you know, point by point, what right. is the doctrine of the Trinity? It's in scripture, but it's helpful um, just for, for learning, but also for as a guideline or guardrails to say, here's what we believe about, here's what we believe the scriptures teach about the Trinity. And if you go, be very careful if you go outside of that. It's not right. to say we're not we're not elevating to level of scripture, but because we believe these truths are derived from scripture, here's what we believe about them. So there's a couple others that you I would mention also because they're more American. Uh, there's the New Hampshire Confession mm-hmm. of Faith, which is, I believe, uh, used by a few churches. Mm-hmm. I think even a couple here in Virginia. Right. Um, there's, I think, Philadelphia, I believe, mm-hmm. had one. Right. And uh, then the more is considered a confession, the uh, Baptist Faith and Message mm-hmm. um, is a confession that is more widely held in the United mm-hmm. States with Baptist churches. So again, all of those, all those are is just this is what we believe. And this is our faith. Right. Exactly. Um, so what about Reformed theology? How would you describe that as as succinctly as you could? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you've got the doctrines of grace, but that's really only Reformed theology on soteriology. Correct. So we're really yeah. only talking about salvation there. Um, and if that's – it would be a mistake, I think, to um, identify Reformed theology solely with – Calvinist soteriology. So right. if you've got the, the so-called five points, you know, that's a good summary of salvation, but there's a lot that come that's grown out of that tradition right. um, that we would say encompasses Reformed theology. So somebody could be, have a Calvinistic idea of salvation, um, but not, for instance, hold to covenant theology. Think of um, somebody like John MacArthur, yes who is Calvinist and his um, uh, beliefs about salvation, but as far as his... And a wonderful preacher. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, But when you... I mean, I think the idea of covenant plays a large role in Reformed theology. Absolutely. Especially these days. I think that that would be the mark um, of difference. One, One thing I would point to, and I actually have heard more than one pastor say that with regards to... Uh, Baptist preachers say that with regards to the issue of baptism, they would much more likely side with a Presbyterian in regards to the view of the covenant with as opposed to a Baptist person that doesn't have a view of the covenant mm. because that the covenant is 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 it the is what uh, reformed theology really builds upon. And that is, uh, to me, I think is foundational to Reformed theology. So there's that uh, confessions, uh, the three C's. I would throw a fourth one in there, I guess, because I guess two kind of go together, Calvinist, soteriology, and confessions, because all the confessions, I believe, well, the older confessions are definitely Calvinist in their soteriology. And then, so Calvinist, confessional, um, I would add creedal, um, holding, you know, as far as the... uh, Deity of Christ and also his uh, the hypostatic union, mm-hmm. right? And the 
Athanasian Creed, um, all of those, as well as um, third one, fourth one, Con covenantal. There you go. Covenantal. Creedal, Calvinist, confessional, covenantal. Mm -hmm. um, all of those things would be the things I think would highlight Reformed theology. Um, and, and honestly, I never heard of these things. Mm -hmm. Never heard of these things uh, until, like, I don't know, three, four years ago? Yeah. So. Oh, there's, there's a great little book. Um, it's just called What is Reformed Theology by R.C. Yes. Sproul. Wonderful book. It is. Um, you could probably get it in paperback for six, seven bucks, something like that. Um, but it goes through all of that. So it, it goes through the doctrines of grace, but then it goes through what are these, all the other Reformed, distinct, what makes some someone Reformed in their right. theology. So, I mean, that's. That's not going to be the end-all and be-all of Reformed theology, but if you're right. just curious and want to dip your toe in the water, um, that's a, that would be a great place to start that I, re I would recommend. And so here's another, another getting back on topic, um, with regards to the Canons of Dort, the articles, uh, Reformed theology. When you look at all of this in the picture of what just happened in uh, uh, with, with Martin Luther, nailing his 95 theses to the wall. This was the response he was looking for. Mm -hmm. He was hoping that the church would have come down and said, hey, all right, let's talk about this stuff. Let's get together, let's have a synod, and talk about these things and see what is true. What does the Word of God actually say? And he didn't get that. And so the Reformation occurred. Uh, many, many people were actually martyred. And, and what's funny about this is I work with a man whose last name is Latimer, who's a descendant of one of the reformers How who was that? actually burned as a heretic and was what's wow. funny and i guess sad is he was he was making a joke he's like oh yeah one of my ancestors was burned as a, as a stake as a heretic and we're like it's like actually your ancestor was a hero of the faith right because he actually believed what was true mm -hmm. and correct and he died for it mm. um so yeah, that's that's why it's important, right? I mean, if we would look at this and say, "Oh, it's not that important. It's not. It's not a big deal." You really are belittling all of the fighting, all of the deaths of those who have who've gone before us uh, in defending the faith mm -hmm. and seeking to be truthful and faithful to what the Word of God says and reveals to us. Right. So it's important. It's important, people. Don't think it's not important. It right. really, really is. Absolutely. And uh, where do we want to go from there? Do you want to read all of these articles? You mentioned Article 6. I think there's a, that's just in the... How many are there in the first doctrine? There's, there's so many. We'd be here for... I just I had a few that I wanted to highlight and kind of jump in. Okay, so you want to go to... Okay, there's 18 articles under the first head of doctrine and followed by all the rejections. Mm -hmm, right. Um, just a note about... Um, uh, under our, under the first head of doctrine, Article 14, because it kind of been um, a question whether um, even if well let's 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 grant the predestination is true. Okay. Uh, of course, you have to because it's in the Bible. Um, but some people would say, well, even if it is technically true, it might not be a good thing to talk about. Okay. And Article uh, 14 under the first head of doctrine rejects that. Um, this is what it says in uh, Dr. Godfrey's translation. He says, um, or Article 14 in the Canons says, This doctrine of divine election, according to the most wise counsel of God, was preached by the prophets, by Christ himself, and by the apostles, in the Old, just as in the New Testament. It was notably preserved in the sacred scriptures. So today, it ought to be taught in the Church of God, 
for which it was particularly intended, at the right time and place, with a spirit of discretion, and in a manner that is religious and holy, far from encouraging any curious examination of the ways of the Most High, it ought to be taught for the glory of the Most Holy Divine Name and for the lively comfort of His people. Hmm. So they answer that question. Should we talk about predestination? They say emphatically, yes. And the reason we should do so is um, because it is a doctrine that highlights the glory of God. So why would we not? And it's such a great a great source of comfort, honestly, for me, in, in just knowing that he is the one that holds tomorrow, mm-hmm. right? So I don't understand how a person who is an advocate for free will and, and does not affirm predestination can truly believe that there is a sovereign God. Because in reality, he's placed individual autonomous human free will over god's sovereignty and at that and once you do that you 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 can't pray for other people to be changed Mm -hmm. you can't uh, because they have it in themselves to to resist god right and if they have it in themselves to resist god i mean first of all it's contrary to scripture right because it says who can resist his will it's the exact argument that paul makes in romans 9 um so it's it's a it's a precious doctrine that I think if more people fully understood, they would truly learn to love the doctrine of predestination because it helps me be a better witness when I go out into onto the beach to go pass out gospel tracts, when I start trying to witness to people and share the gospel with them. I don't have to think, oh, I might do something wrong. Right. Because I have full faith that our God is the one that brings about salvation. He can use even the a stuttering fool like me you know, or someone worse. Uh, right, because there's, there's a song by Andy Mineo in which he says, "God's doing way more with way less," mm-hmm. and I have no excuse to try to doubt Him of what He can do with me. He can do amazing things. He can do nothing, mm-hmm. but it's not about my free will. It's about His sovereign um, control over every single thing in this universe, mm-hmm. and that's a great comfort to me, especially because. In moments where I feel anxiety, in moments where I feel scared, all I have to do is look to that mm-hmm. and trust and know that he is good and he has my tomorrow, no matter what happens. I'm into that. Um, one, and just an example I mentioned earlier, is the rejections of error are kind of where the... Should we read the rejections? There's only eight, or is it nine? There's only eight. Um, they're kind of lengthy. They are kind of lengthy. So and they're they're great. Man, so that's we could why do I, how many doctrines? We could do we could do whole episode dedicated to just one. We really could head of faith or it's one head true. of doctrine. It's true. <clears throat> um, so I mean, we could do that. We could try to hit hit the high points. That's kind of what I was. I feel like for. I keep interrupting every single time you're like we're moving forward, and then it's like, <laughs> hold on a second, let's talk about these things because I don't want people to get lost. No, I'm it's sorry. Fine. So yeah, what do you think? Well, one, and this is. Uh, a common objection to um, the the uh, reform doctrine of predestination or, or election right. is uh, to say what they highlight in uh, rejection five under the first head of doctrine. Um, so they basically to summarize the remonstrants or the Arminians would say mm-hmm. that election of particular persons it's incomplete and non decisive made on the basis of foreseen faith. Um, and the synod utterly rejects that. What they say is... This is repugnant. Yes. That teaching is repugnant to the whole scripture, which repeatedly declares in these texts and many others to our ears and hearts 
Here they quote a number of verses. First, yeah. election is not from works, but from calling, Romans 9, 11. As many as were ordained to eternal life believed, Acts 13, 48. Acts 13, 48. He elected us in him that we might be holy, Ephesians 1, 4. You did not choose me, but I chose you, John fifteen sixteen. If by grace, then not by works, Romans eleven six. And finally, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. And that's 1 John 4.10. So, utterly demolish the idea that um, um, election is based on foreseen faith. And, uh, I'd, you know, Dr. Godfrey took the gloves off too a little bit um, when he, he writes about that sort of teaching. Here's what he says. He says, the really wicked part of this teaching is that it makes Christians better and worthier than non-Christians. Christians are those who made proper use of the grace offered and so are superior to those who have not made use of that grace. Such teaching destroys one of the most basic Christian virtues, namely humility. Mm. And 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, What do you have that you did not receive? Yes. So, Everything. Um, it's funny. Did you see the thing that uh, Nikki did with the, the kids? It's like, where she had, she asked Izzy all these questions. Oh right, like, yeah. Where does money come from, God? Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's correct. <laughs> everything comes from God. Everything is, is nothing that we have is is uh, because of me, right? And so we actually had a really great discussion about this at work with my coworker um, about uh, about billionaires shouldn't exist mm, because right. they don't have they don't have a need for all those things and mm-hmm. and. That's way too much for them to have. And and what are they going to do with it? They can't use it. Why are they being so greedy? Mm-hmm. But when you listen to that argument and you get to the root of it and you see the sin, ultimately they would make the same argument against our God. Mm-hmm. He has absolute power and he has the ability to give to everyone and yet he withholds from some and he gives to others. And they would make that exact same claim. Mm-hmm. He is not good but we know that our god is good every single good thing comes from our god every single gift good gift comes from our god and as job teaches us we even acknowledge him and worship him in the midst of our suffering um and in the midst of our trials right that grows us closer to him mm-hmm. but it's it's just uh, man the god the sovereignty of our god cannot be a trivial thing mm-hmm. and when it comes to the doctrine of predestination it is something so I think it would be good I think it would be good to go ahead and hit each one of these mm-hmm. predestination right uh, and then the next one obviously we're not going to yeah. be spelling tulip here because right, yeah. we're going in the <laughs> order of the remonstrance and they're I mean they got that wrong too right. Golly, can't get that wrong. <laughs> no I'm kidding um, there's one more on um, that I had under the first head of doctrine. So this is rejection number nine on election and worthiness. And the rejection, I'll just read part of it, and then I'll read a paragraph from Robert Godfrey again. Um, but it says this, The synod rejects the error of those who teach, quote, The reason God sends his gospel to one people rather than to another is not merely and solely the good pleasure of God, but because one people is better and more worthy than another people to whom the gospel is not communicated. Mm. End quote. 
Um, so obviously that's directly contradicted by Scripture. Absolutely, and he says so in the very first article, right? Mm-hmm. That right. that we are actually is the same imagery. All men have sinned in Adam, so we don't even have to talk about our own personal sin. This takes it all the way back to the very beginning. God would have been just and right to destroy Adam and rid the earth of humanity, and He didn't. He showed grace. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of the excellent uh, the one of my favorite. Uh, videos of Dr. Uh, Sproul when they said, oh, well, don't you think that God's punishment was too severe? He says, mm-hmm. well, what's wrong with you people? Yeah. It was too severe? Mm-hmm. This creature from the dirt defies the living God? Absolutely not. It's absurd. We, all of us, deserve death. And and it's the, it's the way, I can't remember which pastor has said it, although many have, is the question that we ask ourselves it should not be, why aren't some people, other, these other people saved? The question that we should ask is, why is anybody saved? Mm-hmm. We're and, and, and it goes back to us not realizing the depth of our sin. And this goes back to one of the uses of the law. Mm-hmm. It shows us how wicked we are. I mean, people honestly, genuinely believe they're good people. Right. And I think it's because they have such a low view of the sin that is present within them. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they've never read the Bible either. Right. And I think um, uh, one way, I mean, a lot of this stuff might sound at first blush like, what what, practice, what what difference does it make in the real world? Well, just take that rejection. They're teaching that the reason we have the gospel and the reason they don't have the gospel is we're better than they are. Mm. Think about what else was happening in, or was it going to start to happen in the 17th century? This is at the height of the Age of Exploration, which very quickly became the Age of Colonialism. And Exploitation. And Exploitation and Slavery. Mm -hmm. And why don't those people in Darkest Africa have the gospel? Well, it must be because we're better than they are, which is um, tragic and pernicious and Dr. Godfrey just asked, how might it have been different if people had gone into these other parts of the world with the idea that I'm absolutely no better Mm -hmm. than that person is, and the only reason they have not yet heard the gospel is because of God's good pleasure. Now, obviously, there were Calvinists and non-Calvinists alike who did not live that out well. Right. Um, But he just... You know, as a hypothetical, think about if if people had gotten that right, how things might have looked differently. Food for thought. Yeah, and there's also the the idea that, um, well, if if we think that and if we believe in predestination, well, then people just aren't going to want to witness to other people. Mm-hmm. People aren't going to want to go and share the gospel, which is just not historically true. Mm-hmm. Every single time that there's a great um, going forth of the gospel it, there's Calvinists there on the mm-hmm. ground they're the ones that are going into these dangerous places because they have the full trust of the sovereignty of God right. and they know that mm-hmm. that he's in control and not them and, and, and this is the same thing for the Israelites in the Old Testament you see that they knew their God went before them mm-hmm. and every every we'll say Calvinist for now but reformed believer ought to be able to shout the exact same thing our God goes before us mm-hmm. and we have nothing to fear Absolutely. And if you look at the the modern missionary movement, you've got men like William Carey, yes. who was a Calvinist, Adoniram Judson in the United States, who was a Calvinist and a Baptist. 
Um, and it's true. At first, there were men within William Carey's circle who told him, don't, don't bother going to India. If God wants them to hear the gospel, then they'll hear it. Now, those men eventually changed their minds after William Carey just went ahead and did it anyway. Um, but the modern missionary movement was just full up with Calvinists. So yeah. the idea that it kills evangelism is just not borne out by church history, which hopefully we'll get to talk about some of that. And this, why does church history matter? Yeah. <laughs> so many reasons why church yeah. history matters. Just keep coming up with them. We, and we, we, one day we're going to finish this. We Maybe. like Pastor Ryan in, in the Book of Romans. One day we'll get through with his book. Right, yeah. <laughs> one day we'll get to chapter 9 and 11. Exactly. Um, one Another one, I mean, I guess kind of moving on to that second header doctrine there, um, wanted to highlight Article 3. And this comes under the heading of the infinite value of the death of Christ. It reads as follows. This death of the Son of God is the only and most perfect sacrifice and satisfaction for sins. It is of infinite value and worth, abundantly sufficient to expiate the sins of the whole world. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. Uh, right. Right. And, and this was... Go ahead. No, I was going to say, there's a, there's, a, there's a very quick video of, of Paul Washer, and he's speaking about how someone came to him and asked him, how is it possible, Pastor, that one, the death of one man could atone for the sins of all these people. And he said, oh, it's because, and he does it much more passionately and, and you know, emphatically, um, but it's because of who that person was. We, we Again, we, we're looking at a perfect, holy human, the only one to have ever existed. Mm-hmm. And, and it's because of, of that and who he is in being the eternal God incarnate that we are able to say his... He's of infinite worth. The death of that one person is of infinite worth. You couldn't, you couldn't fill the ocean with, with enough souls of humans to, to account for mm-hmm. how precious one single drop of blood of Christ was. And obviously it's not in the blood. And we go right, the whole yeah, John yeah. MacArthur thing there. Right. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's because of who Jesus was and is. Exactly. And this, was, I mean, this goes back to um, Peter Lombard. Um, but kind of known as the Lombardian formula. So you got to go back a couple, uh, several hundred years before that. But he came up with this formula that Christ's atonement was sufficient for all, but efficient only for the elect. Right. Um, which is a very general statement. And within that, there was disagreement. So right. you have um, the divide between the infralapsarians and superlapsarians. It won't dive into all of that. But if you go back and read the remonstrance, it's worded in such a way to try to kind of drive a wedge in there. But this um, um, article 2.3 here shows that even among the Reformed, where you've got, and however you want to label them, high Calvinists, moderate Calvinists, low Calvinists, they were capable of compromise amongst themselves. Oh, yeah. So they could say, well, we can all agree to this, and this other disagreement that we have is not as important for the time being to respond to these other errors. Right, and they did, and many people signed it. And, and that was one of the things that was remarkable about this document of the Canons of Dort is that people on both sides, the Inflapsarian, Superlapsarian, mm-hmm. it didn't matter. They were like, that's not as important as this. This right. needs to be addressed and condemned and rebuked because it is against Orthodox Christianity mm-hmm. as taught by the Church. Right. I think if we if we do want to read one in its entirety, I would pick uh, Article Eight under this head of doctrine. All right, uh, that is a bit long. 
It's a little bit. Well, yours is a little bit more modern English. Why don't you go ahead and read it? Because mine, mine is, is a little bit more word-for-word translation. Okay. Um, Article 8, Christ died for the elect alone. It was the most free counsel and most gracious will and intention of God the Father that the living and saving efficacy of the most valuable death of his Son would extend to all the elect. To the elect alone he gives justifying faith and infallibly produces salvation through faith. God willed for Christ efficaciously to redeem through the blood of the the cross by which he confirmed the new covenant from every people, tribe, nation, and tongue, all those and only those who were elected to salvation from eternity and were given to him by the Father. God willed that Christ give to the elect the faith that he acquired for them by his death, along with other saving gifts of the Holy Spirit. He also willed for Christ to cleanse them by his blood from all sin, both original and actual, committed before as well as after faith. He willed for Christ to preserve them faithfully even to the end, and finally to bring them without spot or blemish glorified into his presence. Again, that grace is just preserved. It, it, it's If anything were to step in the way of that grace, uh, God's sovereignty would be lost. Right. And, and it's not. Yep. And uh, nothing can take that. Um, nothing's worth even giving that a moment of consideration. In my, in my opinion, in my view, uh, which I believe is right. <laughs> you must. If you, if you didn't, you wouldn't say it. That's right. right. That's right. Um, so how, okay, so uh, let's, let's kind of uh, work towards closing up here. I think we've got a few more minutes. Yeah. Um, what would you say to those who are struggling with predestination, mm-hmm. those who are struggling in accepting that a loving God would do such a thing. Mm-hmm. How would you answer that? Well, I think it's some version of what you said earlier. That, um, you know, I said th- something right? <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, uh, but a lot of it is, I think, would come under the heading of the one that we just read, yeah. um, which is that the only thing that we have to contribute to salvation is sin. Right. And that gets us nowhere. Um, the well, we didn't quite get there, but um, the, when they get into the third and fourth head of doctrine, talking about the extent of sin and um, the uh, the irresistibility of grace, um, they just flat out say that men are or the the remonstrance said men are not they're not totally dead. There's something left in them, and I call that the um, uh, the Miracle Max school of theology. If you've seen if you've seen the Princess Bride, um, right. I don't think I mentioned that before. Use no. that analogy, um, but well, if you haven't seen the movie, mostly dead. <laughs> right, he's only mostly dead. So if you haven't seen the movie, I'm sorry, it came out over 30 years ago. I'll spoil <laughs> it for you. Um, but there's a point in the movie where the main character dies, or apparently dies. Yeah. So they take him to the guy. He's a weird looking little guy, and played by Billy Crystal in a bunch of makeup. And he goes by the name of Miracle Max. They lay him out on the table and said, we need a miracle. And he tells him, I'm not going to try to do the accent because I would not get it right. Um, but he has like, well, your friend here is not dead. He's only mostly dead. Yeah. And they, what does that mean? He said, there's a big difference between all dead and mostly dead. Right. All dead, you, I can't do anything for you. Mostly dead, well, we'll see what we can do. So he cooks up a miracle and they revive him and he goes on to um, save his love and yeah. they all live happily ever after. But it's... 
that's kind of that idea that well, people aren't really dead in their sin. Right. They're they're mostly dead, sure, but there's something there that has that has to. There's that spark of something, um, and I think why predestination is reassuring is that if you get that first point in tulip, if you really grab onto totally, you're dead. And the Bible says that in multiple places. Yeah. Um, so if I really am dead in my sins, then the fact that God chose before the foundation of the earth to save people should be reassuring because Absolutely. that's the only thing that can happen to people who are dead is for God to make them alive again. And he has to choose to do that. Right. He chooses. Absolutely. And then we choose. Right. But again, go back to the verse. I think you already said it. Uh, we love because mm-hmm. he loved us first. Right, First John four. And mm-hmm. uh, and if you look at the look at the picture of adoption, the picture of adoption is is so beautiful to me, and you see that exact same thing, right? Parents actually go and say, "We want that kid," mm-hmm. right? It's a choice, and sometimes it has. I mean, it's when they're little, they have no thing about them that they can be like ah i like that baby Mm -hmm. it's a baby right and if you're adopting a baby it's probably because you want that baby you want a baby and there's a baby i'll take that baby that one you know you don't sit there and say well let me watch it for a little bit let me let me spend some time seeing if right can you tell me what the future of this baby's gonna be because i might not want to be the parent of this baby right Uh, no adoption is i'm taking this child and making it mine He's becoming mine because of my choice, right? So, of course, that's a twisted view. Um, but but that's what God does when he adopts us. Mm-hmm. And, and he loves us with the exact same love that he has for the Son because we become heirs with Christ. And that is a beautiful thing. Um, what I would say to the, the person that's struggling with Arminianism or with predestination is I think at the root of the issue, I would I would say what they're struggling with is pride um, because it's it's it requires absolute humility that it's an inhuman an alien humility mm-hmm. if you will to be able to accept such amazing grace mm-hmm. I was just talking to, to my wife about this is that uh, we saw this she was watching a show and I was just I happened to be there uh, called the Good Doctor, mm. and so there's this atheist girl in there, and she's like a. She begins singing Amazing Grace. So clearly, she has some kind of religious upbringing, right? But it it just amazed me that here are these people proclaiming to be atheists, and the lost world can see the beauty of that song, the beauty of grace freely given, um, but they have no idea the depth. Mm-hmm. Of that beauty, right? They're looking over the surface of a lake and have no idea the depth of it. It is immense. It is amazing grace that is undeserved, and especially when you look at the context of the guy who wrote the song, it's amazing because here's a guy who was tra- uh, trading slaves, and he realizes how much of a wretch he was mm-hmm. and is. He says, "I'm this." grace saved a wretch like me and again here it comes because if god can do that for me why would i deny anybody else this Mm -hmm. message why would i say oh well i'm gonna stop being evangelistic now no absolutely not that amazing grace motivates us to go out and do work uh to do evangelism so predestination is a very difficult doctrine to deal with and it's one that many i think more than 
second to limited atonement. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> I think. For different reasons. But right. Yes. Predestination or election, unconditional election, is one that uh, a lot of people really, really struggle with. Mm-hmm. And I understand it. But I would say, I would submit to them, is it pride? Is it pride that you're struggling with? Do you truly understand the depths of the grace that you are receiving? And that's um, that's probably, I mean, there's, again, like you said, there's so much more <laughs> that we could go into. That's probably a good place to wrap up. And yeah. here's, here's the reason why. Because there was a final activity of the synod. It wasn't their final official act. But the last thing they did, did together before they uh, adjourned was May 29th, 1619. They had a worship service. A oh, worship of Thanksgiving. Yes, it was. And that's, as you were talking about, just um, amazing grace and how just awe-inspiring it is, that the grace that God extends to us in salvation, especially in the doctrine of predestination. Um, that's what you want to do, right? Yeah. I mean, it, sh- it ought to. These things we're talking about are not dry academic things. They ought to cause us to worship. Yes. So that's, and that's exactly what the delegates did. So one of yes. them... Um, who is also pastor there in uh, Dort uh, by the name of Balthazar Lydius. That's a good one. That's a good one. Um, here was his sermon text. And after going through, you know, six months on these five points of doctrine. Kicking out he, the, the minions. <laughs> right. What is he going to preach about? He preaches about amazing grace. Wow. And his text is Isaiah 12, verses 1 through 3. And I'll just read that. Um, and hopefully scripture will be a high note to finish on. Oh, yes. Um, uh, here's what it says. I'm reading for the, from the um, English Standard Version. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Mm. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Amen. What a way to end. Goodness gracious, yes. They're, uh, they're gathering. Um, so that I think that's going to wrap up our discussion yeah. on the Synod of Dort. We'll hit three and four next time. Yeah. All right. Um, so thanks for sticking around with us. We're running a little bit longer than I think we intended to, yeah. but when you get to talking, just stuff. can't help it. Good stuff. Yeah. And hopefully, uh, again, this is our, our goal is to equip the saints of today by studying uh, today and tomorrow by studying the church of yesterday. Uh, we hope you check uh, tune back in with us next time at Church History Matters. And again, my name is Ruben. And, uh, yeah.